Welcome this morning. We're so glad that you're with us. I want to remind you the next Sunday, being Mother's Day, we expect a large crowd as we usually have on Mother's Day, reminding you that we will have our concurrent service schedule next week. Uh, we are going to do this very similar to what we did on Easter, where we have asked some of our folks to stay in the family center, set up a few chairs in there. We want our guests to be funneled in here, if at all possible. And so invite your mothers, invite your fathers, invite anybody, and uh, be with us next week. We'd love to see you. So with that good morning, I hope that you feel like it's a good morning after I tell you what I'm about to tell you, because what I'm going to say might sound rather harsh, but it needs to be said. And so hopefully you won't be mad at me after I say this, and I'm actually going to put it on the screen, but here is a truth that we all need to understand. Let's see it. You are a failure. And I hope that doesn't change your opinion of me. I'm just telling you the facts. And if you are not a failure, if you are a perfect person here this morning, then understand this message isn't for you. You can go ahead and tune me out because this is not for you. But what I want to do this morning for us failures is I want to build on this truth with another truth. And it's this. Failure can lead to favor. I believe that with all my heart. Failure is an event. It's not a destiny. Failure doesn't have to be fatal. And while you and I are all failures, it doesn't have to define us. It doesn't mean that that's who we are. I think... So many times, far too many Christians are living a less than fulfilling existence because they believe that God can never forgive them of their failure. And while many Christians don't leave the church, they don't turn their back on God, they simply cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. And if they do see it, they assume it's a train bearing down on them that's going to run over them because that's what they've experienced so much in life. That's what they're used to. Folks, I want you to hear me loud and clear on this. God is a God of comebacks. The God that we serve is a God of second chances. That's the beautiful thing about God and about grace. The Bible is a book about failure. Have you noticed that? Page after page of Scripture records the failures of people that God still used. And that tells me a couple of things. Number one, it tells me that God wrote the Bible because no one else would include all the failures, right? I mean, if a man was writing this, he wouldn't include all the abject failure that we see over and over again. But it also tells me that God can use people like you and me. That failure doesn't have to be final. You know this because we've talked about it over and over again, but the Bible is one long story about redemption. And you know what a prerequisite to redemption is? failure. You don't need redemption if you hadn't failed. You don't need grace if there is no failure. You don't need salvation if there is no sin. One poet stated it like this. He said, if you never felt pain, then how would you know that I'm a healer? If you never went through difficulty, how would you know that I'm a deliverer? If you never had a trial, how would you know how to overcome how would you, if you've never felt sadness, how would you know that I'm a comforter? If you never made a mistake, how would you know that I'm forgiving? If you never were in trouble, how would you know that I can come to your rescue? If you were never broken, then how would you know that I can make you whole? If you never had a problem, how would you know that I can solve them? If you never had any suffering, then how would you know what I went through? If you never went through the fire, 
then how would you become pure? If I gave you all things, how would you appreciate them? If you were never corrected, how would you know that I loved you? If you had all power, then how would you learn to depend on me? If your life was perfect, then what would you need me for? And I really want to focus on that last line for a second. If your life were perfect, then what would you need me for? No one likes failure. No one sets out intending to fail. No one wants to fail. But it is a part of life, is it not? But can we not admit also that our failure can be redemptive? That there are things that we can learn no other way but through experiencing failure. My guess is that when you look back on the failures in your life, you're not proud of them, but with many of them, you can see that you learned something from them, that they were redemptive in nature. I can remember as a sophomore in high school, I made an F in geometry one semester. And by the way, what's the deal with the letter grades? You know, F means failure, which it should. A doesn't mean awesome. B doesn't mean better than average. C doesn't mean complacent. And we just skipped E, right? Anyway, I made an F on my report card. You see, young people, there was a time when they sent home a report card. And it was a card. It was made out of cardstock, basically. It was thick paper. And they actually put a letter grade next to all the subjects that you had. And you took that home, and they trusted you to give that to your parents. And I made an F in geometry. I actually made the honor roll that semester. I had straight A's and an F. And for my mother, who was a school teacher in this district, that was unacceptable. So she drugged me up to the school to sit down and talk with Mr. Freeman in my presence. I love Mr. Freeman. Still a good friend of mine to this day. But Mr. Freeman was a great teacher. I just didn't like math. And so therefore, I didn't work very hard at it. And so my mother goes in, she sets me down, and she starts firing at the teacher, blaming not him but me, because there was a time also when the parents didn't automatically blame the teacher. They used to blame the student first, right? And so this, this mother of mine goes in, and she sits down with Mr. Freeman. She said, tell me the truth. He's lazy. He's not doing the work. And Mr. Freeman said, no. No, Chris, not lazy. And she said, okay, well, then he must be sleeping in class and not paying attention. And he said, no. No, he seems to pay attention. And she said, well, then he must be disrespectful or something. I mean, tell me, if he is, I'll kill him. I'm going to kill him anyway because he made an F, but I'll kill him twice <laughs> if he's being disrespectful. And Mr. Freeman said, Chris is a good kid. He's a good student. He, he's, he's not disrespectful. He's not lazy. He's not inattentive. And my mother, seemingly angry that she couldn't put her finger on it, she said, well, then what do you think the problem? And he said, Miss McCurley, have you ever thought that maybe your son is dumb at math? And he was exactly right. <laughs> but I learned a hard lesson that day because from that day forward, it was almost the end of the school year, and all summer, my mother woke me up early to do math, all summer. And that's when she learned that I really was dumb at math. But <laughs> I learned a hard lesson that way, that my failure was going to lead to something unpleasant. And so it didn't matter how much I didn't like math. I needed to work hard at it because I didn't want to go through that again. Failure doesn't have to be final. In fact, failure can lead to favor. The only thing that's final is quitting. And I think this bears out in John chapter 21. Look with me, starting in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, conventional wisdom will tell you that winners never fail and failures never win, but nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly, Peter had his share of failures, did he not? He denied Jesus three times. We remember him most probably for that. He got out of the boat and he walked on water until he paid attention more to the waves and the wind and he started to sink. Remember in, uh, and I think it was Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that Paul calls Peter out for being hypocritical. So Peter certainly had his share of failures. Fell asleep in the garden when Jesus needed him to keep watch. He certainly had his share of failures. But there were good times, right? I mean, there was that time in John chapter 6 when a crowd is following Jesus and they leave him because the teaching is too difficult for them. And Jesus looks at his apostles and said, basically, you can leave too. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He makes this bold profession of faith. You have the words of life. We see another time when they go to take Jesus by force that Peter wields a sword and even cuts off a, a slave of the priest's ear, Malchus. And so there were good times. There were those moments where, where Peter stood up bold and said, you know, Lord, we'll die with you, right? But of course, there were those low points in his life as well. There were those points where Peter was anything but the rock that Jesus called him. So what does this tell us? What does all this mean for us? Well, I think it means that we can relate to Peter. I think it means that I'm a lot like Peter. There are those moments when I am on fire for Jesus, and there are those moments where I feel like I've been lit on fire by life. And we've all been there. And some people allow the moments those low points in their life, they allow them to knock them down and they don't really ever recover. Some people completely leave the faith, they leave the church, they turn their back on God. But most of us, if we don't pick ourselves up, we just kind of find ourselves in limbo, right? Kind of like yesterday, I went to go vote. And so Libby and I, you know, we get our number and we go vote. And I voted for the Wiley School Board and that was it. I said, that's it. By the way, I won again. Did you see that? Yeah, I got 100% of the vote, believe it or not. So anyway, I, I vote, and I, I get done, and I, I look at the lady, and I said, I only voted for Wiley School Board. And she said, well, you've moved. You live in Tuscola. I said, well, I don't live in Tuscola. I have a Tuscola address. She said, well, that's why you didn't get to vote for the other things. And I said, well, but there was a proposition on there for the city of Tuscola. And she goes, do you pay taxes to Tuscola? And I said, no, I live in the Wiley School District. So I'm in limbo, right? I have a Tuscola address, I pay, I pay Abilene sewer, I have Steamboat Mountain water. I mean, I, I'm just in limbo. And I think a lot of Christians find themselves in that state. They don't really have both feet in the kingdom, but they don't really have both feet in the world. They're just kind of stuck in between. We might call them tweeners. And it's unfortunate. Because even in that state, even though they haven't left the church and abandoned their faith... They're still not living life to the fullest because they've allowed failure to get the best of them. That's where Peter is at, I believe, in John chapter 21. He's just kind of in limbo. He's gone back to fishing, which should tell us something, right? He left 
fishing behind to follow Jesus. Now he's gone back to fishing. What does that say? Maybe that he feels like he has no use anymore. Maybe he feels like, okay, I'm done. Jesus won't surely want me back. So I got to go back to making a living and my vocation that I used to do. But I want you to notice a few things from this episode. First of all, notice that Jesus wasn't through with Peter. If you look back in Mark chapter 16, when the women go to the tomb, they look in and they see a man dressed in white And he looks at them and he says to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. And then I want you to notice what he says immediately after this. He says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You find that interesting? That the man says, Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why? I mean, he was a disciple. That would include, if you just said go and tell his disciples, that would include Peter. Why did he put an emphasis on Peter? Well, Jesus wasn't through with Peter. He tracked him down. As we'll see in just a moment, he reinstates him. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Peter had bragged that even if everyone else deserted Jesus, he would not. And yet, when push came to shove, he turned to jello, didn't he? And Peter probably thought that ministry was over for him. But Jesus doesn't place him in the category of biggest loser. Instead, he tracks him down. Notice also 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Cephas being Peter. So who was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to? Well, to Peter. And he didn't gather the group together and and call out Peter in front of them. And and like my coach used to do, you're all going to run suicides because Peter hurt the team by denying me. He doesn't single Peter out. He tracks down Peter. He appears to Peter first, but Christ comes after Peter. Where was Peter? We don't know. I mean, I think we can assume Peter probably did like a lot of us and maybe thought that there was no hope for him. Maybe he thought that, you know, in his shame and in his guilt, there was no, there was no reason to go forward. Maybe he was locked in this prison of guilt and thinking to himself, how could I be so dumb? How could I have been so silly? How, why did I do that? We do that, don't we? But then notice John 21, 1 through 14 and connect it to Luke 5, 1 through 11. You remember Luke 5, 1 through 11, we talked about it a few weeks ago. I'm sure you can recite that sermon by heart because you remember it. We had a sermon on that where we talked about Jesus going to Peter and saying, let me get in your boat. I'm going to preach from the boat because the crowds were engulfing him. And so he uses his Peter boat, Peter's boat as a pulpit. And then he tells Peter after he was done preaching, go out into the middle and, and throw out your nets. And this is a professional fisherman who had fished all night. And, and Jesus is telling him, go and throw out your nets. And Peter must have been thinking, there are no fish there. I fished all night. I know what I'm doing. But yet he pulls up so many fish, the boats begin to sink almost, right? So you connect that to what we see in John 21. We've come full circle. The first time Jesus gave fishing advice, now he's reeling Peter back in. At first he caught Peter. Now he's reeling Peter back in. And he asked him a question, a series of questions, but they all relate to, Peter, will you obey me even if it costs you everything? 
Same type of question, same theme. Are you going to obey me? Because I wonder if Peter really understood, I doubt it, what it meant to tend my sheep. What it meant to truly follow Jesus. Finally, notice that Jesus reinstates Peter. Peter became a rock again. Jesus still believed in Peter. He still had work for him to do. He said he was going to build his church upon that rock, and that hadn't changed. What's interesting here is that the scriptures say that this conversation happened around a charcoal fire. And that that Greek term happens only one other time in the New Testament. You know when it is? Any guesses? In the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus three times. Which is interesting, right? So around one charcoal fire... Peter said he didn't know Jesus. Around another charcoal fire, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. By one charcoal fire, Peter doesn't punish him, or or, or Jesus doesn't punish Peter, but rather restores him. Doesn't make him promise to do better next time. Doesn't scold him. He simply reinstates him by asking him three times, do you love me? One time for every time Peter denied him. What a beautiful story. There are three main points when it comes to following Jesus. And they are love, love, and love. First you love, then you serve. First you love, then you share. First you love, then you lead. And please, please hear me on this. You will never be productive if you quit. Ever. Don't bow out of service. Don't drop out of the race. You know, I I love the... I love the song, and I think we're going to sing it here in a few moments before the throne of God. And part of that song reads like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. My guess is we've all been at that point in our lives. We've all been bowed to despair. We've looked at our failure and we've thought, how am I going to move past this? Shame and guilt haunts us and eats away at us. I mean, I can still look back at some of the things I've done in my life and say, wow, how could I have been so silly? How could I have been so dumb to do that? And while I'm not proud of those moments, and while I certainly don't think that in the moment they were good, i got to tell you, I am what I am today because of those things. Yes, some of those failures follow us for the rest of our lives. Sometimes we fail so epically that we deal with the consequences for the rest of our lives. I'm not trying to put a good spin on that, because failure is failure any way you slice it. But, I think we can all admit that failure can be redemptive as well. It doesn't have to be fatal. It's an event, not a destiny. Let me ask you this. Why do you think John 21, 1 through 17 is in the Bible? Why do you think that's there? There's only one reason. To show that God is a God of second chances. To show that even in Peter's biggest failure, there is redemption. There is forgiveness. That's the only reason that's included. Otherwise, you wouldn't include it if you're a human being writing Peter's story. If Peter was writing the story, he wouldn't include that. The Holy Spirit has to be behind this, right? The only reason you would include that is to show that there is grace that you can be forgiven, that failure doesn't have to be final, 
And here's a couple other things that we learned from this episode that we can apply to our lives. First of all, failure is a teacher. It's not an undertaker. There are people who have this theology of big me, little God. And when you have that theology, it's all about me, I'm the bigger one in this relationship, then you feel like you've got to help God out. You never feel like he's doing enough. You feel like that your salvation is tied to helping yourself, and you don't see God as the bigger person in that picture. But then there are those people who have the right theology, which is little me, big God. And when God is the bigger one in the equation, now all of a sudden you see that you can't handle failure by yourself. Don't you think Peter would have fixed it if he could have? Judas tried to, and we saw where that ended. But when it's big God, little me, then I understand that my failure, while I committed it, and while I am responsible, and while I am to blame, I can't fix it on my own. Only the big God can. Why do the pages of Scripture include story after story about people who have failed and yet God used? I'll tell you why. Because of our education. It's meant to educate us and enlighten us that we can still be used. That there is still hope even though we have failed. Just understand that when it comes to failure, it can be a teacher, not an undertaker. Understand who's holding the shovel. Satan wants to bury you. Jesus wants to lift you up. He wants to dig you out of that hole. Failure can also be fertilizer. I want you to notice what Peter writes at the very end of his second letter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So how do you grow in grace and knowledge? Well, I can tell you how you grow in knowledge. You can study the Bible, you can read books, that kind of thing. But how do you grow in grace? How does that happen? Well, I think one way is through failure. Understanding that God is a God of forgiveness. I'm not telling you to go and fail on purpose so that you can receive that forgiveness and, and, and help you to grow. But I think all of us, as I said earlier, can look back and see how the redemptive qualities of failure have led us to being more mature, and have helped us to grow in our relationship with God. You see, failure can be round up or it can be fertilizer. It can kill everything in its path or it can help you to grow. It can be toxic or it can be nurturing. It's up to us to decide. Are we going to let it be final or are we going to let it help us to grow and, and to be more than, than our destiny? It's just an event. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he seeks forgiveness for his failure. And instead of allowing his sin to bury him, he picks himself up. He turns to the only one who can provide restoration. And in his contrite prayer in Psalm 51, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David knew that his failure didn't have to be final. That he could only turn to the only one who could help him through this. He turns to God because he understands that he's the only one that can reinstate him. David is known for two big episodes in his life, defeating Goliath and being defeated by the Goliath of sin. And in fact, many of us only remember David for that second one, his sin with Bathsheba. And yet after this man commits adultery, after he conspires to have this woman's husband killed so he can have her for himself, God says he's a man after his own heart. That should tell us something. 
It should tell us failure doesn't have to be fatal, right? Failure can also be a ministry. David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. How is David going to teach these sinners? Well, probably by relating his own experience, right? Saved people save people. People who were once lost seek those who are lost. And we tell them our story in a hope that they will come to Christ and make the story of salvation their story, right? Converted sinners make the best preachers. And so we are seeking to save those because we have been in their shoes and we know what it's like. The greatness of failure is no match for the graciousness of God. I read the story the other day about a woman in Chicago who was homeless. She spent her days seeking her next high. She was addicted to cocaine. She had a little girl that she would rent out to men for $100 each so that she could earn enough money to get her next fix. A minister happens upon her and is speaking with her in one of the rare moments where she's actually kind of sober. And he says, have you ever thought about going to the church for help? And she looks shocked. She said, why would I go to the church? They'll make me feel worse about my situation. Maybe we need to have a sign on the front of our buildings that says, failure's welcome. No perfect people allowed, right? I think sometimes the mentality or the message that we send is come in, do like we do, rise up to our level, and then we'll help you. But we've got to take people where they're at, right? We don't get to decide who needs forgiveness. That's not our job. We don't get to decide who gets it and who doesn't. That's God's business, not ours. And we've all been failures. We will probably all continue to fail at some point. But those who come to God in humble repentance are not turned away. At least they shouldn't be. The church should serve to make forgiveness known. And I want you to know if you're visiting this morning, if you're a guest this morning, I think I speak with all confidence for everyone here that this is a church that is dedicated to helping failures become victors. And one of the reasons why we're dedicated to that is because we've been in your shoes and we know what it's like. And we should never get so haughty and proud to think that we're above that. we got to remember where we came from. And understand that there are many people in the same situation and that there is hope in this place. We're not here to make people feel worse. We're here to make people turn their setback into a comeback, right? That's what we're here for. This is the best place for sinners. This is right here. Used to be a time when people shouted out amen. I guess we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> this is the best place for sinners. We're going to sing a song. And if we can pray for you, if we can love on you and encourage you, if we can immerse you for the remission of your sins so that you can begin a daily walk with God, we want to help you. If you are a failure this morning, there's no better place for you to be. But listen to me on this. If you leave here as a failure, not taking advantage of the opportunity that you have, why would you do that? Get right with God. Let him turn your setback into a comeback and come as we stand and as we sing.